You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas This Week podcast. I'm here with the man, the myth, the legend, Mark LaCour. What's up, buddy? What's up, Jake? So the funny thing about that is my 14-year-old son the other day told me, he goes, Dad, he goes, you got maybe 20, 25 years left. He goes, when you die, I don't have to worry about your company because your core team is all millennials and I've done the math and it'll all be in their peak earning years. And I go, Ethan, <laughs> thank you. That's kind of, that's, you're already making, like Jake said, a myth. Like you're already making me a myth. All right, I'm still alive. I'm still here. But just I don't know if that's morbid or if he's just highly intelligent. <laughs> It's it's a bit of both. I think he could have chose better words, but I, I do like the fact that he's thinking things through. He, um, it is so funny. It is funny. He actually he's already figured out he wants to go to the Air Force Academy. He wants to go to an officer. He's going to get a degree in business, and then he's going to go work for another company for a couple of years, and he's going to step into place and run OGGN. So we'll see if it works out for him. You know that'll <laughs> that change about twenty five thousand times before that. Oh hell, heck yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to play professional baseball, but then I, I realized I sucked at baseball, and then I was going to do stuff. I was going to go to art school. And then I was going to be a rock star. Yeah. Probably could have pulled that one off. I wanted to be a World War II fighter pilot. And when I was about eight years old, I you see a World War II fighter pilot. World War II fighter pilot. <laughs> you really World War II is over. <laughs> unless, yeah, unless I invent a time machine, there's no way I could ever be a World War II fighter pilot. <laughs> and speaking of War II fighter pilots, we got some reviews real quick. It's a great podcast by Montergo23 from USA. You guys do a great job covering all aspects of the oil and gas industry. I'm a safety coordinator. Blah, blah, blah. For small contractors new to the industry, your podcast is a great resource to me. Keep up the good work. Mark, Jake, Sarah, Page, Colin, Justin, Patrick, and everybody else in the background. Thank you. That's awesome that he appreciates all of us and the people in the background that gets all the hard work done, the Julies and Emmons of the world. And then we have Great Work Guys by Quality Matters. Oh, that's Kyle. So Kyle just launched a new podcast called Quality Matters. It's all about quality, not just in oil and gas, but in, in the industry as a whole. So if you get a chance, go check that one out. It's a really great show, but he gave us a review. Love the podcast and everyone with... Everything that OGG does, keep it up, which we will do, Kyle. I will end up having to put a link to Kyle's podcast in the show notes here. But speaking of show notes, it's time to jump into the stories. What's first, Jake? OPEC is threatening to kill U.S. Shell, but it's kind of our own fault. So obviously, OPEC is the organized organization of petroleum exporting countries, which we all know, is looking to kind of just put an end to the new NOPEC bill that Congress is looking to pass, which is the No Oil Producing and Exporting Cartels Act. So that is essentially, I don't I think it's saying that we're not going to work with OPEC, right? Yeah, it's exactly what it is. It, it, but the odds of this legislation get passed are slim, but that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. So, so, what I'm, so what I'm trying to talk about in this article is what would be the repercussions if this did pass? And so I think it would most likely be, I mean, think about it. OPEC exists to control production so that we can keep oil prices at a, at a, a mark that's happy for everybody, right? So like that 60 to $70 mark, everybody pretty much makes money for the most part. There's a few outliers. If we do away with OPEC and everybody just increases production to what maximum capacity, what's going to happen? Price is going to crash. Absolutely going to crash. We're going to experience 2013, 2014 all over again, except this time probably worse because shale is so much further along than it was then. We're producing so much more. Yeah. And it's interesting. So a couple of things, you know, we try not to ever talk politics on the show. 
but I'm going to have to touch this a little bit, in the fact that our lawmakers a lot of times make laws around stuff they know absolutely nothing about. So first thing is, whether we pass a law or not, it's going to have zero impact on whether OPEC sticks around or not, right? We can't legislate what goes on in other people's countries. The other thing is OPEC is a cartel. So it's basically a group of companies that have come together with a common a goal. And that goal, like you said, is to keep all prices profitable for everybody. And, and the reason they do it's different, but a lot of it has to do with all the social programs that they run in the Middle East. They have to have a way to fund that. So if we try to interfere with that balance right now, because right now we're we're pretty close to being a swing producer in the world, but just not quite there yet. But if we try to if we try to hold them accountable to our rules and regulations, which is what this this NOPEC rule is about, it's not going to work. It's we can't judge are enforced other things in other countries. And so, you know, messing with this is a waste of time. And quite honestly, our political groups here in the U.S. have much bigger things they need to be worrying about than OPEC. The market will take care of OPEC. And you and I have talked about this for years. You know, I think we've already seen the beginning of the destabilization of OPEC. You know, as the U.S. production comes online more and more, we have the ability to flood the market if we want. The shale geology is not unique to the U.S. It's all over the world. So in the future, we'll see other countries come on board with good, solid production numbers. So, you know, to our politicians, which actually, Jake, we actually have several people in Congress that have reached out to us over the last couple of years that listen to the show. So if you're listening to me, just get rid of this NOPEC bill and go take care of stuff more important. I mean, think about who really has something to lose here. You know, shale is extremely capital intensive. The bankers are the ones who are providing a significant amount of financing to make this even possible to begin with. So do you think the bankers are going to sit by and let a no-peg bill pass? Hell no. no. There's no and this way. no-peg thing's not new. I see this every couple of years, probably last couple of decades. So it's just, it's not going to happen. And it's just a waste of everybody's time and, and energy. So, you know, whatever. We, I think our politicians really should look at stuff more important. So the next article, next couple articles are going to kind of segue into some of the topics that were brought up at Sarah Week, just hosted by IHS Market. Mark, did you make it out to Sarah? Yeah, it was it was actually really impressive. The security there, Jake, reminded me of walking on, into a military base. Really, it was there's only two points of entry into the entire place. There was a separate point to get your your badge. Your badge had your picture on it, so there's no way you could share a badge with somebody else. There were police, Houston police officers, all over the place. There were ordnance uh, sniffing dogs. There were, you know, the dogs there to help the officers take anybody down if they needed to. The security was heavy, heavy, heavy. And the, the cool thing is you had a lot of heavy hitters. I had uh, Rick Perry walk right by me, you know, while I'm sitting there. We had, I got spent a little bit of time with Mark Papa, spent 15, 20 minutes talking to him, spent some time with the TPH folks. So it was it was good. But the, the security thing was the thing that was the most impressive and the, the, the amount of heavy hitters that were in, that, in the conference. Yeah, so this article actually, speaking of Mark Papa, is actually about him. So there's a huge central debate about the U.S. shell business today. We talked about this a little bit on the last podcast as well. And how long can productivity growth continue? So he was quoted with saying, I'm not particularly optimistic that over the next five years, the industry is going to be able to show the year-over-year improvements and well recoveries that we've seen over the last 10 years. And so he said the the two biggest factors at play are frack hits and parent-child well interference, and then a shrinking inventory of high-quality drilling locations. So if you don't know, Mark Papa was the the founder of EOG Resources, which at one point was a part of Enron. They broke away from Enron and he ran that for a while. He left and then started Centennial Resource Development, which now he's the, the CEO of as, of as well. So he's one of the the early, early shell pioneers who've kind of got us to this point where we're at in the industry. And so you kind of have to listen to what he's saying. doesn't mean it's going to be 100% spot on, but it's something you should at least consider. No, this this guy usually calls it right. And we talked about this a long time ago. Remember when he started his new gig, he reached out to his friends. And what did he raise? Like 
six billion dollars yeah he was just like hey yeah just like friends and family money seed round six billion smart guy doing really smart stuff and i agree with him that we're not going to see the year over year improvements what's going to happen is these improvements in production are going to come in jumps as new technology comes on board you know one of the things that i had not thought of speaking of sarah week until i sat in the panel of sarah week is take something like a rock core which we've studied and studied using x-rays and you know different type of visual ways to study it and so you think that rock core that's sitting in the warehouse for the last 20 years we know everything about it but jake what happens if we use artificial intelligence and it looks at that rock core using acoustics or lasers like there may be there may be data there important data that can be turned into knowledge that we just don't know is there because we're not looking at it in the same way john with tutor picker and holt brought up a really good example he goes you know what if you took every car on the road that has a rain sensor so most new cars have a rain sensor for the windshield wipers and what happens if you would mesh them together and connect them together now you have the world's first meshed precipitation detecting machine so all of a sudden these cars with the existing sensors are in there could have pinpoint accuracy and where it's raining where's this precipitation going on right just thinking of things a little bit differently. So mm-hmm. that's the the jumps that are gonna have to happen to keep production up in the shell plays and any of the unconventionals. So I think Mark Papa's right. We're not gonna continue to see that. Now things like well spacing, man, the service companies out there, speaking of artificial intelligence, are really crunching down on this. Our sponsor, IBM, actually is heavy involved now with their with Watson. So it's I agree with him that we're not gonna see the year over year recoveries. What's gonna happen is we're gonna see less improvements for say three or four or five years and then a big jump in production because of some new technology like fiber down the hole or whatever. So, but Mark Papa usually knows what he's talking about. Yeah. So let's kind of dive a little bit more into the kind of the parent child challenge and the well declines, you know, in, you know, shale oil and gas today. So obviously we've seen over the past few weeks, maybe the past month, investors are extremely upset about not really getting the returns that they've been promised over the last 10 years. And so we've seen a lot of earnings calls, a lot of these CEOs coming out and saying, well, you know, here's the big issue that we're seeing. It's these parent-child well relationships and the well declines. We're just not able to really get as much productivity out of these as we thought we could. So they're at Sarah Week and Kenneth's CEO, I don't have his name here in front of me, kind of dove a little bit deeper into it, kind of dealing with the inner well communication that they call, quote unquote, quote, cube development, which is now used across multiple multiple basins. And it's the first operator's first cube on a well in the Oklahoma stack. And so essentially it allows, this approach allows them to develop dozens of wells at a time using multiple rigs and frack spreads on a single pad. So it entails viewing the subsurface from a 3D perspective because the parent-child relationships are both lateral and vertical. So it's interesting. He wasn't really, in in his talk, he wasn't really challenging Papa, but he was kind of disagreeing that saying that there's certain ways that we can use technology to kind of address the issue. And so I kind of see both sides of it. I think, you know, if you're, if you're punching a million holes into the same reservoir, it's kind of hard, in my opinion, to kind of use technology to, I mean, you're depleting the exact same reservoir. The child wells are not going to produce as much as the parent wells, but maybe there is some kind of technology to kind of mitigate that. I don't know what it is, but Obviously, in Canada, is working on something. So I think this is something that I'm going to pay a lot of attention to, especially in the coming months. Yeah. In case people don't know what parent-child wells are, it sounds really – we have a funny group of acronyms in yeah, this we industry. Do. So a parent well – so in the U.S., whenever there's acreage and somebody has the mineral rights and they sell the mineral rights or lease it and somebody buys it and wants to go in production – Typically in the contracts, there's some type of production number that the producer has to hit in order to keep that lease. And so the parent well is usually the original well that's drilled. It's usually drilled to produce the maximum amount of uh, production from that one well. And it basically legally holds that field, right, for the operator. Then they come back and drill other wells, which are called child wells. Now, the parent well affects the reservoir, which then affects the child wells 
production, right? So that's that's what parent child well things. The thing is that's getting crazy now is that it used to be almost all wells were, were horizontal and, and they had some deviation, but they were basically up and down. Now with the lateral drilling and with the length of the laterals and the fact that you can uh, move those laterals up or down, you almost got to think of it as a 3D block of cheese. Like where are all the holes being drilled? And like you said, Jake, you know, there's technology out there that's coming that's going to help us maximize that. But, you know, there's a whole challenge there in itself is how do you maximize recovery from that reservoir with the least amount of CapEx, which is directly tied to the least amount of wells. That's why you're seeing multiple wells drilled on one pad now. It's better for the environment. It looks better for everybody, but it's also a CapEx thing. It's cheaper to drill multiple wells from that one pad than to go out and drill individual wells. So like you, I would keep an eye on this. It is a fun time to, to be in this industry when you have really smart people look at challenging like this. Yeah. One of the cool quotes that I saw that in Canada was saying that they learn a lot from nearby operators such as Marathon. So their quote is saying, one of the things we're real big on is data trades because we get a level of data that's not public. And so most mature companies have been working on this parent-child issue for a while and we trade information with a number of those companies. How I mean, cool is that? I've been talking it's about this for so long and like these companies act like, I mean, they are competitors, but at the same time, you know what they say, a rising tide raises all boats. We need more collaboration, which is going to lead us right into this next article. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. You know, and so for the oil industry to really main, remain competitive, we need to break the tradition of just sharing, you know, this little information. We need to share some actual real data, right? We're in the commodity business. Come on. Like somebody's always going to be there to buy your oil. And so. And it's, it's interesting. So we're seeing more of this. And we've talked about this on the HSE show before where companies, even though they're competitors, want everybody to go home safe in life, even their competition. So they're sharing HSE data. It's going to be the same way, just like you're talking about with production and with exploration data, if we share that data, and you and we're at the point now from a technology point of view where you can strip out identifiable information. So even though I'm sharing my information with a competitor, they don't really know where that is, you know, or they don't know who it is or what it is, whatever you want to keep secret because it's your secret competitive sauce. Mm-hmm. But it's just better for everybody. And I think, Jake, you know, some of the stuff y'all are doing with WellHub ties into this. When you have single platforms that all the data can reside in, then it makes it much easier not only to share it with everybody, but also make sure you only share what you want. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it's to share operational data and, uh, you know, say like reservoir engineering data and well planning data, that stuff is, you know, we're seen as, you know, quote unquote proprietary. But if you start sharing that level of information, as opposed to just basic production information that everybody can get from a drilling info or a well database or any other kind of like public source, it's going to completely transform the industry. You know, so yeah, think, and, and, think about like, like offshore right now. Everybody says that offshore is just not economical. The margins are extremely thin. It's super high risk. The wells are super expensive. You're just not making the money that you could. So what if able, companies were able to come together, share the information, collaborate, and lower the cost of operating offshore? Now, you took something that was seen as uneconomical with some margins. You made it viable for companies again. Yep. And one of the things that's going to drive those costs down offshore is uniformity. So we have where everything offshore is built to a certain spec. It's not individualized like it is now, right? And in, in order to get there, in order to have all the major operators around the world agree upon things like drill bits and rigs and thrusters and trees and plets and manifolds, it's going to drive costs drive cost savings through the roof. But the only way you get that is if you share information. So that need to drive down cost offshore is there, like you said. And we have the ability to do that, but only if we start sharing data. Yeah. So this leads right into the next article. So oil and gas is looking to create value in digital transformation. Also another topic that was brought up and talked about tremendously there at Sarah Week. So it seems like we're kind of at an inflection point. And so one of the head guys over at Saudi Aramco was quoted in saying, we've invested a tremendous amount of resources into the standards, the equipment collecting the data. And today we're at the leading edge of data, but we are not at the leading edge of data-based decision-making. 
He said that oil and gas has some of the largest data sets in the world, which is 100% true, and that Saudi Aramco alone generates 3 billion data points per day of service data alone, and then subservice data has similar numbers. So the question becomes how to integrate all the data to make better decisions. And so he was also quoted as saying is we have a tremendous amount of data around the health of our equipment. It just tells the operator in the field, hey, you've got a disaster out there. Turn the piece of equipment off, right? That doesn't help them as a corporate leader, but data can help them make decisions better. And that's the next level the industry is going. So I think the I had this conversation with somebody, I won't say who it was, but they work at one of the, the larger oil and gas companies. And we were kind of talking about just a digital transformation. And I think everybody makes the mistake of thinking that they lead the digital transformation with the technology first and they figure out the people component later. And I've talked to numerous large companies that are looking to do this and they've all failed. And I think what you have to do is you have to think about building, starting with the people first and building the solution around that. You have to drive engagement. If you don't have engagement with the way that people communicate and the way that they work and the way that they access information and store information, you're not going to succeed in a digital transformation. A company is just a group of people. It's not necessarily your products. It's not necessarily your services. Those are all just kind of secondary. Your, your company is your people, you know? So I think in order for this to work, there's a couple key components to really drive that engagement. I think obviously, like you just mentioned, like data integration, having a single source of truth for data, you need that. You know, we're dealing with a billion different data, data sources and a whole bunch of data points. It's just not going to work, right? So look at what companies like Facebook have done, companies like Google, you know, we need to imitate them in a, in a lot of different ways that they operate. Secondly, you need to change the way that you communicate and bring that into a platform. You know, if all of the value that is happening, all the communication is taking place in a place like email that you don't have access to if somebody leaves a company or that other employees cannot necessarily see when it's vital information that's important to a project, you're really stifling innovation as well. Thirdly, you have to capture as much knowledge as possible, which also kind of goes back to the communication thing. You need to be able to have engineers need to be able to create notes in a platform around certain data. You need to be able to bring all of your communication in, whether it looks like, you know, like a messaging tool, like a Slack or a Yammer or something like that, or, or something proprietary that you build internally. And I think fourth, you have to look at the way that, like, like I mentioned, you look at what a lot of the large tech companies in the world are running the organization and ask yourself, what could we learn from this? So like implementing agile methodology, a scrum framework, and different ways of doing project management. I mean, you look at, you look at the life cycle of a well, and it's just like extremely, extremely complex and logistically challenging project management. And there's so much that we can learn from Silicon Valley, who's refined this process, which, by the way, like the scrum framework, for example, wasn't built by the software industry. It was built by the manufacturing industry. And the software industry adopted it because they realized that it worked, right? It's right. a way to analyze what you're doing and refine over time and just make it better and, you know, do it within a certain deadline, you know? And so I think there's a lot of ways that, you know, we've seen certain companies try to try to deploy this, but I think it's something that companies need to look at. And so those are extremely, extremely important key elements to really, really drive digital transformation in oil and gas today. Yeah, it's funny you brought up Agile. So back when I had my market research company, we used the Agile methodology. So we ran sprints. So we'd go out and collect all the marketing data we could, not worry about if it was important or not. And then we'd come back and we'd analyze it. And it was a very effective way to drive real business results. And it was quick, much quicker than the waterfall methodology where you would figure out what data you wanted, go out there and find it, document it, and figure out what other data you wanted. So you know, we all can learn from, from the tech space. The other thing, Jake, and I'm glad you brought this up. I'm glad you brought the people part up. How many times have you you and I have seen a technology company come up with something really cool, but they never really ask the people that have to use this really cool tool in oil and gas what do they think of it. And so, so you have, many times uh, I've made the mistake yeah. too. I, I nobody. I mean, I've, I talk about this on the Stratus podcast all the time, but we spent a year building a mobile app for GDS, where my last company that we thought pumpers were going to use in the field, and we were just so out of touch with the reality at the time. This is like four or five years ago 
we just we didn't understand. We didn't understand how these guys actually worked, and nobody used it. And so we spent a lot of time and money, and it was a huge mistake. And you know, we fell victim to the same thing that so many other tech companies, or even oil and gas companies, who are building tech for their companies, still allow the tech companies to kind of run independent without actually consulting the business side of it and the stakeholders who should actually be involved in a project like that. Yeah, so I agree 100%. The people are everything. And and one of the things that I will take from the tech companies because I've had discussions with Google Oil and Amazon Web Services and uh, Salesforce, they all have dedicated oil and gas approaches here, is that they finally realize they need the input from us. When they first stepped into oil and gas, they were quite frankly a bit cocky and they go, oh, we could do everything better than you can. They had never seen a well. They had never seen a pipeline. They had never seen a a cracker and a refinery explode, you know? So it, we need to do this together, but I do agree with you. It's the ability for us to start using the technology that already exists, that there's other large, extremely large companies like Google out there doing stuff really well. We have to do it. And, and we're moving that way, whether we want to or not. It was really cool. I actually met the head of Google Oil at Sarah Week. And guess what, Jake? He's a 15-year veteran from BP. Yep. Yep. So, so good stuff. So Mark, why can't oil and gas companies snag millennial talent? Because we're still a bunch of old white guys. That's That's exactly. the <laughs> <laughs> so that is the focus of a new study called Workforce of the Future that I think was put on by Saudi Aramco. So they're interviewing a whole bunch of millennials and Generation Zs that are most interested in jobs and industry associated with new technologies. And so total of 44% of polled 3,075 young STEM talent across 10 countries said they would be interested in pursuing a career in oil and gas compared to 77% in the technology sector. 58% in life sciences and pharmaceuticals, and 57% in healthcare. So, for example, the top drivers for millennials and Gen Z's career picks are, here's the things that they care the most about. Salary, obviously. Work-life balance. Job stability. That's a big one for the oil and gas industry. On-the-job fulfillment. So, feeling like that they can actually make a difference. And a good work environment. You know, so maybe it's working in an office similar to, you know, like a co-working space like here at the Canyon or at like a WeWork or something like that. You can also create the same kind of environment in your, you know, your, your corporate office, right? We've seen companies, I think a great example of this is ExxonMobil. I think Southwestern Energy has a great campus. Philip 66, great campus. Mark, I'm sure you've seen a whole bunch more. Halburn, actually, decent campus. Not as good as the other ones, but it's still nice. The And then the top three uh, positive associations of the oil and gas industry among the 15 to 35-year-old STEM talent were that the industry does pay well. We know that. There's always a, a premium, an oil and gas premium that you get paid. And the industry is crucial for every com- country's economy and development. And it is an industry that we can't live without, obviously. Yeah. So I have not seen the data. I've actually looked at the article. Jake, pull it right now. I love this article, but I am going to call foul here. We've done our own research. This data, I think, is biased. I'm not sure if they collect a lot of data from, say, African countries where young men and women are just want a job in oil and gas because they know it's prosperous. But I think if you take the same surveys and did it in the US and Europe, you'd see a much lower number. Quite frankly, a lot of the millennials and uh, almost all of the Generation Zs think that oil and gas is a industry of the past, that we will be outpaced by renewables and that there's no reason to come work in this industry. And they're wrong. They just don't know that they're wrong. And that's one of the challenges that's facing our industry right now is those Zs especially, almost none of them want to come work in our industry. And so what happens when we can't hire people anymore? And that's a, a problem that's coming at us like a freight train. I'm, I'm actually going to be talking about this a little bit at the Taft Petroleum Forum. I'm actually next week I'll be up there talking about this. But this is a good article to read to understand the fundamentals of the, and I said old guy like me, so I'm 53 years old. My generation mm. would go work for ExxonMobil. <laughs> yeah, shut up. My generation would go work for ExxonMobil because I had this this 
understanding of what's called delayed gratification. So I'd go work for Exxon. I may not even like my job, but I'd do it for 25 or 30 years so that I could retire and enjoy life. And this new generations that are coming in don't want to live their life that way. They want to enjoy life while they're working. It's how I am actually myself, even though I'm not a millennial or generation Z. And so as an industry, we need to understand that number one, long-term employees are going to disappear. Even if I treat you extremely well, you're a millennial or Z, you're going to a different experience. So no matter how much I pay you, no matter how well I treat you at Exxon or Chevron or whatever, I'm going to go work somewhere else after a couple I years. think as an employer, I think a good question is asked is what do you see yourself doing after you work here, if you're in the hiring process and understanding that nobody wants to have those, those 20, 30, 40 year jobs anymore. People want to spend three to five years in a position to move on. Yeah. And so, and as a culture, as a business culture, we have to be okay with that. And and if you're a company out there that's not okay with that, you're going to get left behind because it's going to change whether you like it or not. The other part of this though, is that if we, if we do a good job of recruiting good talent, if we start telling the true stories of our industry, not politics, not opinions, but the true stories of the, the prosperity we bring to countries, to the fact that you can't live a modern life without hydrocarbons. If we actually start telling the stories and we can start attracting this talent and you, and you brought up STEM, which is science, technology, engineer, mathematics, there's a huge shortage of that in the world. And Jake, you know, this, the tech companies are out are out competing the oil and gas companies for the STEMS talent. Yep. And and we need to do something about it as an industry. And, and we're starting to, but as like everything else we do, we're a little bit slower and a little bit late to the game. Oil and gas companies, get it together. Let's get the best now, talent. people. Yeah. All right, guys. That wraps up um, the stories you- for today. So let's hop into the drilling info rig count. We are down 2% from the previous week. We were at 1,025 live rigs. Still a good solid number. It's funny, Jake. I've somehow, for some reason, recently I was looking at the rigs count in Louisiana, and it's 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 really I'm so, feel so sorry for y'all. Now I'm from Louisiana, so I can dog you off I want, but it's like seven rigs working the entire state right now. Now the cool thing is when there's a rig drilling, you're not in production. So even though there's a low number of rigs in Louisiana, the actual production numbers are going up because all those wells that were drilling are going to production. But speaking of production, we have our events coming up. I just spoke with us just a minute ago. So the West Current Petroleum Forum, March 21st up in Taft, California. I'll be up there speaking to a university up there. Looking forward to that. We have the Oil and Gas Global Network Super Happy Hour. That's Tuesday, March 26th. We have a link in the show notes. Go sign up. It's always a great time. We have two more happy hours launching soon, one in Dallas and, and one in Midland. So if you want to help us out there, if you want to sponsor those, uh, reach out to Julie. Put Julie's contact information in the show notes. We have the SPE Gulf Coast Chapter Golf Tournament Monday, April 8th. We're promoting the heck out of that. We're looking to do something where if you win, you may be able to join us on one of our podcasts. So it'll be something different that we're experimenting with. And we're trying to support the SPE. You know, the money they raise, Jake, at the golf tournament and other stuff, they go, it all goes to scholarships for, for young kids that want to work in our industry, That's which awesome. we need to support. Yeah. And then we have the, boy, this is a long one, Houston Professional Petroleum Data Expo, April 9th and 10th uh, here in Houston. We're going to have some podcasts there. And then those events and more are always in my monthly newsletter. you got a link in the show notes. If you're listening to this, just swipe up or left, depending if you're on Android or, or, or Apple. You can see the show notes and you just click on the link and sign up. We never spam you. And then if you want Jake and I to come speak, we're actually going to New Mexico in, what, June or July to go speak about yeah, That's one of those months. Yeah. Uh, if you want Jake and I to come speak to your organization, your school, your university, your sales and marketing kickoff, whatever, reach out to Jake and I. We're happy to share those details. And then Jake and I were talking. So we have not done our first Friday Q&A yet. You want to tell the audience why we haven't done it yet, Jake? Because we got one question. So <laughs> that's really not enough to build a show around. So if you guys want the first Friday Q&As to continue, you got to write in and ask some questions. If we don't have questions, we're just going to keep moving on with just normal news shows. Yeah. So we need to have at least a good, say, like six to eight of those to really have a show around that. 
Yeah, and I'm not sure why it died off. It's uh, we were t- typically getting twenty to thirty questions every month, and I wouldn't pare that down to five or six. And this month we only have one. So if you want to help us out, just go go to the website oilandgasthisweek.com, click on Ask a Question, submit your question. If we use your question on the air, you'll get a shout out. And so far, the one guy that submitted a question probably will get a shout out. And then while you're there, go ahead and give us your email address. Sign up on the website. We never spam you. We're going to end up using that for stuff in the future. It also lets you know when we release a new episode. And then Jake and I have heard everybody out there. We're working really hard to get more regular in these episodes. Just give us a little bit more patience. Same way with the giveaway. I now know exactly what it is. It has been purchased. Uh, we're waiting for the landing page to stand up. Hopefully the next show that Jake and I do, will start giving away. And, and it went, folks, and I'm telling you, it's really cool. It's like really, really, really cool. But you got to wait till next week. Whew, that's a lot. Jake, you ready to get out of here? Yeah, let's do it. All right, folks. Remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.